You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, church. Some of you are starting to get the song down, you're clapping to it and singing to it like me. I'm up here singing to it every Sunday. It's good to have you with us here today. We're in this series called Gotta Have Faith. We're walking through the book of Genesis and I'm having so much fun. I decided we're gonna extend this by a few weeks to dig deep into these next few stories. The stories we're gonna be digging into are the story of Jacob and his family. Next week, we'll begin this process of looking at the meaning of his name and the changing of his name. It's just so much good stuff. There's stuff for blended families in here and parents and oh, it's just so much good stuff. You won't wanna miss it. And so today we're gonna pick up where we've left off and where we've been talking about is a guy named Abraham and Abraham's family. So Abraham has a son, his name is Isaac. Isaac ends up having two sons, Jacob and Esau. And a lot of times the Bible say things like there were other children. We're just following the main characters that the Bible follows and that's what we're gonna do. So as we're looking at the story today, here's the question I want in the back of your mind, ready? Can I trust God to come through? And really we're gonna add this little tagline, in time. This is the question of faith that all of us have to kind of wrestle to the ground at some point. It is the crux of our faith. Can I trust God? And if I can, will he come through? And if so, will he come through in time? And we're going to see that in different ways throughout today, because if I can answer confidently yes to this question, it's going to change the way that I live in this moment. And that's true for every single moment. So let's go ahead and jump into Genesis. We'll kind of pick up a little bit of where we've been and we'll jump right into today's story. Genesis chapter 25, verse 19 says this. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham, I don't know where that came from. Abraham became the father of Isaac and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Paddan Aram and sister of Laban, the Aramean. First of all, they tell you in Bible college, if you just pronounce Old Testament words like you know how to pronounce them, everybody will think you're right and you'll just keep moving. It'd be great. And that was wonderful until I did a men's retreat in May and I totally botched apparently the way you say name and a guy came over afterwards and he said, hey, great, great message today, but uh, this is how you say that. And I was like, "Mm, there's always one. Okay, so (laughs) feel free not to do that if I botch one of these. All right, Genesis 25, 21. I, did, I, did I skip? Go back for a second. I, let me see for a second. No, I did. Okay, sorry. Thank you. Thank you. 21. All right. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her. <clears throat> and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. We'll talk all about that next week. After this, his brother came out, and his hand grasped Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. We'll talk about that next week. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to him. All right, what's going on in these passages we've read? Let me just touch on a few important things. First of all, notice Isaac has the same problem that his daddy Abraham had, and they are not getting pregnant. And one thing that I think is powerful, we don't know that Abraham didn't do this, but it doesn't say he did it, but it does say Abraham's son Isaac did it, and that is this. When Isaac's wife couldn't get pregnant, he prayed for her. And there's a whole sermon right there that is not the focus of today, But Isaac, 
when his wife was struggling, instead of maybe being bitter or holding her accountable, it was common in that day that they just assumed infertility was her fault. Partly because, uh, how do we say this? If the seed is coming out, there's every reason to believe that the garden must be the problem. And so the thought was that, but instead of blaming her, instead of being bitter at her, he prays for her. So that one little line is intended to be deep with meaning about how he loves and cares for and feels about his wife. In spite of some of what we talked about last week, if you were here, he just loves her and cares for her. Now, the rest of what's kind of happening in here is notice when she's not getting pregnant, where does she go? She doesn't call the doctor. There's no doctor. I mean, think about this for a second. Your whole world, if you feel sick, you might first go to the pharmacy and start buying medicine that you believe will at least help cope with the problem until it gets better on its own. If it gets really bad, you go to ER or you make an appointment with your doctor and you go see them and everything will get better. She goes to inquire of the Lord and she gets a response. There are two nations inside you and the younger one is gonna lead the older one. The older one's gonna serve the younger one. Now, you may think to yourself, but, but they're twins. I mean, aren't they really coming about at the same time? I, look, I, I don't have twins, but my sister has twins, and I'm telling you, that one minute makes all the difference in the world, and they use it against each other all the time. I'm just messing around. But in all seriousness for a second, the way this worked in ancient cultures, the oldest child was given what's called the birth right. Now, there are some development of this in Genesis, and so we're not 100% sure because like later, uh, what we call Torah books came out hundreds of years after the fact. So there's some of, we don't know if the cultures matched, you know, dollar for dollar, were they perfectly the same? But later on, I think it's in Deuteronomy chapter 17, I think I'm saying that correctly, uh, Deuteronomy clarifies what the birthright would look like. And basically what it comes with is it comes with a double portion of the inheritance. So simple math, if you have two kids like Jacob and Esau, since Esau, we'll go this way, Esau and then Jacob. Since Esau was the older one, what you would do is add a third to the inheritance. And Esau would get two portions and Jacob would get one. And that's what it meant to be born first. Even in a twin setting where it might be 30 seconds, a minute, five minutes or whatever, apart, the older one would get a double portion. The purpose of the double portion was not just to have more money, it was to have resources to manage the responsibility of now caring for the family. So when dad passed away or was physically incapacitated and unable to care for the family, the oldest son stepped into the role and it was his job to care for the brothers, the sisters, mom, whatever the situation might be until they are on their own. So you would be responsible for getting the sisters married off. You'd be responsible for brother until he was old enough to go on his own and be married. So not only did it come with more, because then whatever was left over was yours to keep. So there was the blessing of more, but it came with the responsibility of more as well. And so it's a really big deal that God tells Rebecca, in your womb are two nations and the older one will serve the younger one saying that there will be a flipping of responsibility going on here. Even though the birthright is coming, it's not gonna happen like you think that it's going to happen. Now, beyond just that, what I really wanna point out to you today, because remember our initial setup question is that whole thing about waiting on God. Notice verse 20 and verse 26, it says this, Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. Now, that may not be uncommon today. People are waiting to get to their older, at least late 20s, sometimes 30s, even sometimes later. But back then, this was not normal. 
Back then, most of the time, and, and I realized, we're talking culture from thousands of years ago. It's a completely different world. There was no industrial revolution. There were no cars. They didn't have engines or fuel or gasoline or internet. Oh my goodness, how'd they survive? But no microwaves? I mean, come on now, right? Okay, but the world was different. So it was normal for a man in his early to mid-20s, say 20 to 25 years old, to marry a young teenage girl, sometimes between 13 and 16 years old. And our culture today believes it's weird, and I agree. So don't walk away from here saying, well, my pastor said, no, 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 no. It's illegal by today's standards, and it should be. But back then, it wasn't uncommon. And the reason is, a man could get established financially and kind of maturity-wise. He could have some money to make on his own. He could own some things. He could be able to care for a family and be responsible. And then the wife had the maximum amount of years to produce children. And children were a great blessing because they could help with the work. They could, that's why you really wanted sons and they could grow up and take responsibility for things and help care for the family in their older years. So when you read these two verses and you find out he's 40 years old when he gets married, the first thing that should kind of set off in your mind is, wait a minute, why did it take so long? And we just read it and keep going. I have a friend, um, we worked together at my last church years, decades ago. And he only worked at my church for a very brief season. He was a missionary who was coming back on furlough and took a job in the States for a while and then went back to being a missionary, still a missionary today. But I knew him when he was in his 30s, and then mid-30s and late 30s, and he still wasn't married. I, I don't know that I'm a great gauge on whether a guy is a, a, a good, you know, I don't know, choice. But at least by my account, he was wise, smart, godly, hardworking, good-looking. I don't know if I'm a good gauge at that. I don't know. Like, he had all the things. He checked all the boxes and yet couldn't find someone. Finally, in his 40s, God had arranged this beautiful, beautiful marriage. And now they're married today, still married today, and have four beautiful children. Um, he's doing ministry in North Africa and it's great to see them growing and thriving. But not only did he get married later, but their kids had to come later too. And I know there was this anxiety in his heart, like, God, I'm praying about this. I'm asking for this. Why aren't you giving it to me? And the tension in that is the same tension we all feel. You can insert your own story it could be about buying a house. It could be about buying a car. It could be about finding a spouse. It could be about getting out of debt or financially stable. It could be about having a baby. There's any number of things we could apply it to, but we have a really hard time, don't we? Trusting God in his time. The pattern in scripture and also the pattern in my life, so I'm just gonna assume it's probably the pattern in all our lives, what I see consistently is God gives us enough to know what we need to do to be faithful, but he doesn't always give us as much as we want. And that's part of the tension we feel this side of heaven. It's not a tension for God because God knows he's good and God knows he's faithful and God knows how he's gonna resolve it and God knows how he's gonna take care of it. God knows all the things that God knows, but we don't. And it's a power struggle for us because we wanna know. 
And if God would simply tell us in exactly 10 years and, you know, uh, three months and 14 days and six hours and 32 minutes and five seconds, I'm going to do this thing that you've been praying about. Then we could go, oh, well, good. Then I can do all the things I need to do to be faithful till then. But God withholds that. And he says, I just want you to know, don't eat the fruit from that tree. And you go, but it looks so appealing. Like, what's the difference between the two fruits? You don't need to worry about that. You just need to know that I'm telling you, don't do it. Well, what will happen if I do it? Bad things. <laughs> then you will die. You will surely die. Ah, what does that mean? Just trust me. Just trust me. So it brings up this great question. Like, why does it seem that God's time is not my time? And the goal for all of us is to get to this place in our faith where we could say confidently, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't know where the story is going. I don't know how it's going to unfold, but I know this. I can trust you. This is my example, and some of you may laugh at this. I get it. It's just my example. It's one of many. And forgive me because I've told this story before. But years ago, when my wife and I got married, um, she had never had a car accident or a ticket up to that point. That was not my story, a uh, true story. I wasn't even able to get my driver's license at 16 because I'd already had a car accident, but that's another story for another day. So it was not our, my story. So we got married and uh, we both had two old cars that our parents had either given to us or helped us buy. And uh, they were just kind of dying and old anyway. Um, so we decided to buy a car and it was not a fancy car. If I'm remembering correctly, it's been a couple of days, but it was like a 1998. Some of you weren't even born yet, I get it. But it was like a 1998 Chevy Lumina. And they don't even make these things anymore. That's how amazing they were. They want to keep them classic and keep them older. <laughs> and we were one month, I believe it was 45 days from having our last payment turned in. And some of you know exactly what that feels like. It's like, you know, freedom is coming. And we took out, if I'm not mistaken, we took out a five-year loan on the bad boy. And I was so excited because it's like, you know what we could do with that money per month? Like, I don't even know what we could do with that money per month. I never got to find out because my wife, unfortunately, had her first accident ever. And it was one of those accidents where somebody in front of you has an accident and then you have an accident, but because you hit them harder, you take all the credit. Isn't that, don't you love when you get all the credit for things? It feels so good, so rewarding, but sure enough, um, they took the car and they totaled it. And if you've ever had this situation, you know exactly how that feels, because you're like, I can't go buy a car for what you're offering me. For my, my car is worth more to me than it was before, but you're stuck. And so what happened is we were down to one car for a while trying to figure it out. It was about 30 days, if I remember correctly. And I didn't know how to solve it. I never bought really a car. That was the first car that I bought. I bought a used one. I didn't know what to do. And I got tired and frustrated one day. As God would have it, my wife and I only worked about a half mile or so apart. And for a long time, early, even earlier in our marriage, this wasn't very far in, but even earlier in our marriage, we actually had one car at one point and I would drive her to work or she would drive me to work. In the worst case scenario, you'd walk a half mile, get a ride from somebody. It wasn't hard to figure out. And we lived 20 minutes away, it's a big deal. We just carpool together. You just had to figure out your schedule around each other. It worked, it was no problem. We didn't have kids, we made it work. But I was feeling antsy and I was feeling irritated and I was feeling like as the man of the house, I need to have a plan to care for my family. So we're gonna go car shopping and I'll save you all the stories of the used car salesmen that you know 
tried to rip me off. And yeah, there's some funny stories in there maybe for another day. So finally one day I talked to a family member. He says, hey, I got a family member who works for Ford. And so you get the Ford family discount. That's great. So I go to Ford and, and they're telling me, oh, we got this great deal, but we can't give you the price till you get in there. And you know, you got all the things worked out. And then they give me the price. They're like, now, if we give you the price, you know, they start giving me this runaround, then you, you got to buy because, you know, it, it's a lot of work for us to give you this price. If you don't buy it, so I feel obligated. Like my family member to this guy and I paid $19,000 for a Ford Focus wagon. And some of you are like, yeah, some of you, thank you. Some of you are like, what? You did what? Like, I don't know what, that, I don't know what kind of deal that was. It didn't feel like a deal to me. But I came back later, found out most people were paying $12,000 for a Ford Focus. But I guess if you extend the back, it costs almost double the cost of the car. And I drove that car. And every time I drove that car, we kept that car for years and years. I kept that car. It did great getting us from Colorado to the Midwest, Midwest and Colorado. But man, I hate it. Every time I drove that car, I think I paid way too much money for this car. This is 20 years ago. Yes, I bet. I know, I'm that old. Can you believe it? I know, you're shocked. You're like, where is this going? 24 hours after I bought the car, my dad calls and he says, man, I'm helping this older lady do future planning and she can no longer drive. And she has a Cutlass Sierra with 80 something thousand miles on it and she wants to know if she could donate it to you. I said, where were you 24 hours ago? Why is, it, why is it when I feel anxious in my spirit and then I act on that anxiety, things almost never turn out right? Have you noticed that? I wanna be like the psalmist who says, but I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My times, my times are in your hands. Like my life, everything before me, it, it's in your hands. I can trust you. That's critical for setting up this next story in Genesis because we're about to see what happens when we don't trust God versus we do trust God. Here we go, Genesis 25, 27. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. We're gonna unpack that more next week. So I want you to hear more of this because what we're gonna see over these next few weeks is a whole lot of family drama, a whole lot of family drama. And whether you come from a... a, a, a a traditional family or a blended family or whatever your situation might be, there's so much wisdom we can gain from this family. There's so much we can learn from their, their good choices and their mistakes. So you do not wanna miss the next few weeks. But basically what this means is uh, Jacob is a mama's boy and Esau is a daddy's boy. Verse 28, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. Rebecca loved Jacob. Verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. We're not gonna have time to unpack all that. I don't believe it'll be relevant for next week. But real quick, Edom basically means red, the red people. Um, they're the Edomites. And uh, if you read your Old Testament, you see like the Edomites in there, you'll see them listed. That's because they came from Esau. And it's relevant because what you see then throughout biblical history is Jacob's descendants, Israel, and these Edomites, they do not get along and there's constant fighting between them. 
So this is a way of setting up all that drama. So when you come across their names later on, you go, oh, I know. Because you may be wondering, where did these people who oppose Israelites come from? Oh, there you go. It's always been in the story. So now come back for a minute. The word famished, really, this is a great translation of the Hebrew word because the Hebrew word has to do with like just, oh, I'm so desperate. I need it now. Do any of you have kids like this? (laughs) My kids, when they get really hungry, they'll look at me and say, dad, I'm starving. And I'll say, you have no idea what starving feels like, right? It's the same kid who will tell me when they can't eat half their meal because they really want dessert. Like, I can't eat it all. I'm not hungry anymore. Like, really, you want that ice cream? Send it to somebody who's starving in another country. I thought that was you. I thought you were the one starving from the other country. We don't know what it feels like to be hungry, do we? My guess is neither did Esau. What this really reveals is two things. Esau didn't have a plan, and Esau's character didn't line up with his responsibilities. The reason I say that is Esau knew he was going to be hunting. He knew how exhausting it was to go out and whatever, chase the animals or wait patiently for the animals. I mean, he didn't at all plan on taking a granola bar with him, nothing, like like cliff bar, something. I mean, in, in all reality, what about some beef jerky? Maybe not beef jerky, I don't know, lamb jerky, did they have that? Whatever. He needed something, but he didn't even plan on this. And my guess is, the story doesn't say it emphatically, but it reads like this, that Jacob knew this was coming. Jacob went ahead and made some stew, anticipating the moment. And one of them is a planner who's looking around and thinking about how to get things done, and the other one is impulsively chasing every desire that they have. And therein lies the problem. And before we throw a stone at Esau, Come on, can't we relate? Could be a pair of shoes or a car. Could be somebody who's not our spouse. Could be closing the deal so you you aren't quite honest in what you're saying, but you're gonna close that deal. And you start to wonder to yourself, will God provide for me or do I need to take matters into my own hands? And as soon as you start to wonder that, you're one step away from a traumatic decision. It's been said for years now, if we fail to plan, we might as well plan to fail. One of my friends um, saw a change coming in his schedule. Things were gonna be different, and on a certain day of the week, at a certain time, he was going to have way too much alone time on his hands. And he knew his propensity for temptation and sin And so he just reached out to a group of us and said, would you help? I need you to reach out to me on this day and just check on me. Ask how I'm doing and really pray for me on these days and times. But I was super proud of my friend because he was just being honest about his temptations, his flesh, his weaknesses. And he was trying to figure out how to solve the problem. Instead of just walking willy-nilly into a moment and finding himself overwhelmed in the moment by what he's feeling, he decided to do something proactive about it. Let's take a look at what happens in the story. Verse 31, Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. So remember the birthright, it's different than the blessing, which we'll look at next week. The birthright is this double portion and responsibility. It is an honor. It is the highest honor to be the oldest son. Esau doesn't care. He's hungry. 
So he's willing to trade all the blessing of future inheritance that dad and granddad have worked hard for for years to get us to this place. Do you know what they went through? And he was willing to squander it for a bowl of lentil soup. Have you ever had lentil soup? I have. It's okay. I mean, it ain't all that. So Esau looks at him and says, look, I'm about to die. He's got a flair for the dramatic. He's starving, remember? What good is the birthright to me? But before we cast a stone at Esau, this is a reality for a lot of us. Last week, if you weren't here, you missed a powerful moment in our services. We handed out these uh, pink cards And we said, look, if God is calling you to draw a line in the sand and stop a generational sin pattern that's been handed to you, perhaps by your parents or their parents or whoever it might be, why not make today the day? And many people got up around the room. And what we did is we took all those. We didn't read them. We put them in a bag and we put them in the middle of our um, leadership team and we just prayed over them. We prayed over you. Then I took that bag home, I didn't read them, and we, my son and I, my eight-year-old and I, we dumped them in my backyard. I got the tiny little like fire pit, you know, that I got this year, my wife bought for me. Put some wood on there, and we lit it. I took pictures of it all. Maybe I'll post those later to Facebook or something. And we just prayed over you. And here's specifically my prayer, is God, would you take this fire that's burning up, whatever these generational patterns are, and you, would you replace that burning sensation we have to act out in these ways, and would you replace them with a desire, a fire in our bellies to live in a way that's pleasing to you? And I prayed that over all of you. So I don't know what was on those cards. A few of them, as I dumped them out, I could read, and I thought, my goodness, there's some heavy things represented here. But I know this. Somewhere when you were eight years old or 12 years old or 15 or 25 or whatever it is, Somewhere along the way, life led you to a desperate moment. And the desperation of that moment led you to act in a certain way. And those actions made sense to you. In that season of your life, you thought, this is the only way I can figure out how to solve this problem. And a lot of times, the problem is representing a real feeling. But feelings change. I don't doubt that Esau was hungry. I don't doubt that Esau had a real desire. But you can solve a hunger problem with a little bit of patience. It's just that so many of us are driven by our desires that we don't actually stop and evaluate, is this really what I want for my life? And what happens the first time is you create a path. And if you've ever, like we live, my wife and I, we live, we live right um, behind the Avon Town Park, and that connects over to the Washington Township Park. So I love to, to go on these prayer walks or take my kids, bike rides or whatever. We love to go over to the both. And if you've ever been to the Washington Township Park here in, in Avon, there's this little lake. If you go down the hill and you're back by the little pavilion and the building back there, there's this big like lake pond. I don't know what you want to call the thing back there. And if you go into the woods back there, there are all these trails. And so sometimes I like to find those little trails that take you to the woods and they pop out and there's more in front of you. So there's this one spot I remember. If you take, go around that water on the back and then there's the baseball fields up ahead, if you know what I'm talking about. And as you're heading this way towards the baseball fields and you come out of the woods this way, you come up against this path and then you're standing there and if you look in front of you, there's another path. And what goes through my mind, because this is how I see the world, I'm thinking to myself, who cut that path the first time? 
And how did they cut it? Like, is somebody going through there with a machete and they're just going, you know, hacking away at the path? I doubt it. I'm gonna guess that that path had some other way to get there. Maybe somebody walked the path the first time and maybe they took their bike through it one or two times. Maybe a motorcycle went through it. Maybe they intentionally had somebody with a path digging machine. I have no idea what that is. And they cut the path. But here's what I know. If you want to take another path, and my boys and I like to do this sometimes because we like to go on adventures, and what that really means is let's cut our own path. You look at the area just over to the left of it, and you think to yourself, there's no path here. In order for me to clear this path, it's going to take a lot of effort and intentionality. I'm going to have to intentionally cut down some limbs or break them along the way. I'm going to have to figure out how to stomp down the ground because over here, it's not stomped down. Don't do this. They frown on this in local parks. But the reason this is important is scientists tell us today, this is what's going on in our brains. And it's called neural pathways. See, the first time you go down a path, It's anxiety building. In fact, some people even report when they do some things they aren't supposed to do the first time, they actually, their body gets an adrenaline rush and they start to shake. But then you do it again and you do it again and you do it again and it gets easier each time that you do it. Until next thing you know, you have a well-worn path. So when certain triggers come along, they trip you and you just go ahead and act out in certain ways. But if you want to change, you want to create a new path, It's very difficult at the beginning because you have to wear a new path. That means when the old trigger comes, you don't go down the same path. You start thinking about a new way. I'm no longer going to act in that way. I've now got to act in this way. I might have to tame my tongue. I might have to control myself and not speak the thing that I always spoke or tell the joke I always told or, 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 or take the chemical or drink the drink or use the pill or turn to the internet or make the call or do the text. I've got the same stress trigger, but this is how I did respond, but I need a new way. I want a new way. And it's very difficult and painful at first, but if you don't ever take those first few steps, you never end up with a new path. If you ever go to any park that you enjoy and you find a path, what happens is over time, those other trees and bushes will start to grow up. At the Avon Town Park where we live, they started putting up signs saying, please don't go here. They literally had a Frisbee uh, golf course right there. And they're saying, please don't walk here. We're trying to let the forest restore itself. And that's what will happen in your brain. If you continue to not choose this path over time, it will come alive and grown again. And this will be hidden to you. And this will be alive now. But it means choosing the hard thing early on. It's very painful to choose. But the reality is our habits reveal our values and then eventually shape our character. What that means is thinking about Esau for a minute, he didn't really value the birthright. So he had no reason to even be concerned with whether trading his birthright for stew was even something he should consider. I'm hungry, so I'm going to chase my desires wherever they lead me. If you read the rest of Esau's story, we're not going to really spend any more time on Esau except for later when it connects to Jacob. But Esau, this is the pattern for his life. He goes and he marries women who are so outside the faith. He's not real concerned about the things of God or the promise and the blessing that's been handed down from Abraham to Isaac to him. He could have literally been a key character in God's story, but he didn't want that. He didn't care about that. So his habits revealed what he really valued. What he really valued was himself. But then your habits, not only do they reveal your values, they also shape your character. 
And see, what I know is, I know some people, maybe this is you, and they keep going down the same path, but it's not really who they want to be. It's just that somewhere along the way, at eight or 12 or 15 or 28 or whatever it is, they learned that this works to fulfill certain desires, and so they keep doing it. Even though in the back of their mind, they keep saying, I know there has to be a better way. There has to be a better way. Come back to the story, Genesis 25. But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he, Esau, swore an oath to him, Jacob, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. And he ate and he drank and he got up and he left. That was it. So he was willing to trade this awesome opportunity for soup. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? But when was the last time you were tempted to trade something awesome for something significantly less than awesome? One way you'll know, I think, is in the rest of that verse. Verse 34, it says, so Esau despised his birthright. One lady came up to me after last service, and she said, I wish you would have spent more time on that. I said, I know, I didn't have more time to spend. She said, I just see, and she said, so is her, right? And she said, I just see so many men who chase this. And I said, be careful. There's plenty of women who chase this too. But you know what I mean? Like when you got what you thought you would fulfill your desires and then you got it and it left you wanting and it didn't do what you thought it would do. I will say I've seen plenty of men and women do this. And they, just using this one example, they get into a relationship with somebody and they have their one night together, and then all of a sudden they're not interested anymore. And I don't always know how to explain it, but I know this. If you put your hope in anything apart from Jesus Christ, it's always going to leave you wanting more because it was never built to carry the weight. And that doesn't matter if it's your amazing husband, your amazing wife, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a car, a job, money. It doesn't matter. What you will find is there's a pattern to this. And here's the pattern. When we get what we want, what we want often gets us. So when we put our hope in the wrong place and we go chasing after love in all the wrong places and then we find that thing doesn't meet the need, then we feel frustrated because I don't know what to do then. This is what I thought would fix the problem. Esau wasn't hungry anymore, but he still had a bigger issue to deal with his immoral perspective. His values were all broken and messed up. And so what do we do when that happens to us? Well, the Bible calls it repentance. It means to change, to turn around, to come back to say, God, I know this isn't what you desire for me. I know there's a better way. I know there's another way. Because the alternative to this is to live with resentment the rest of your life. Esau and Jacob, their relationship is broken for decades to come as a result of this and one more moment we're gonna look at next week. But Esau was the one willing to trade it. This past week as I was writing the sermon, uh, I, I saw an article, and a guy named Shaquille O'Neal, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, Shaq uh, was being asked a question about what's going on with the Boston Celtics head coach, and I'm not going to talk about that. It's not important for what I want to say. But if you don't know the story, the Boston Celtics head coach um, had an office relationship with somebody who wasn't his, his girlfriend or, or wife, and he was in a relationship with somebody else. And so Shaq was commenting on that, and Shaq said, hey, I, I can't throw a stone. I can't judge him because I've been there, done that. And then he said this profound thing. He said, the happiest days of my life were coming home and hearing six different people say, Daddy. Happiest days of my life. Forget the money, forget the cars, even forget the championships. When I lost those days, I was all the way down. 
when I lost that for being stupid, it killed me. And I thought, what a great testimony from a modern day man. That's not just about men, ladies. But all of us have got to take an honest evaluation of our lives and our habits and say, are my habits taking me where I want them to take me? And if not, why not start over? Why not a different path? And I know it's gonna be hard. It's gonna be painful. Those first few moments of learning a new way, everything in you is gonna cry out to go to the old way because it's what your brain knows. This is why the Bible says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve God's will. So what do I do? Well, what we wanna do is we wanna give you a few minutes to just seek the Lord. We've been asking God to come into this place and speak into our lives right now and just give us some steps. You're like, I don't even know where to start. I don't know what to do. Well, first of all, if you need help, we're here, always. But second of all, that same person who had the, the, the situation in his life and new schedule and he had to figure out, asked us to pray, he taught me this. He said, there's this little thing he learned called pies. Anybody like pie? Yeah? If you don't like pie, I'd like to pray for you after the service. Come and see me. I've got a pink card you could fill out. We can break this generational sin pattern. Pies. So it's easy for you to remember, right? It's just a little an acronym. And he said, we are, we are complex beings that God made. And so if you think about physically, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. And the whole idea is I really need to be healthy in all of these areas. And they feed each other. So if I'm drinking two or three caffeinated drinks a day and therefore I can't sleep at night and that's making me tired the next day, did you know that tired is a key stress and stress is one of the key triggers for going down the old path to doing things I didn't want to do? So it might mean not drinking caffeine or not as much or not afternoon or whatever it is, but I've got to make a physical decision that impacts me emotionally and ultimately spiritually. Maybe it's not eating as many sugary foods or fried foods. Maybe it's changing the way I diet at all because my diet leaves me exhausted. Or maybe it's exercising more so I get out my anxiety and my stress during the day and, and not saving it for nighttime when I'm lying in bed or whatever it might be so that I'm not weak in my flesh and tempted to act out. And maybe some of you, it's intellectually. Maybe you don't know enough about God to know what he desires from you, but you want to know. Maybe for you, it's I'm a parent or I'm a, I'm a spouse and, and I thought this would be easy, but now it's really, really hard and I don't know what to do. Well, instead of just saying, I don't know what to do, maybe you need to grow by reading a certain book or reaching out to a counselor, a professional and saying, someone help me. I need to grow in this area. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe there's a boundary you need to put with somebody in your life who's super unhealthy for you and they keep making you a negative person and they keep feeding into those negative thoughts and ideas and making you a gossip or whatever it is or they tempt you to, to lie about something, whatever it might be and you need to draw some boundaries or maybe it's the opposite and you need a friend and you need to reach out and embrace community and say, you know what? I need people who are gonna speak life into me. Maybe it's spiritually, you know, coming to church once a month or twice a year. Not enough. Talking to God whenever everything falls apart, I mean, it's not a bad thing, but it's not enough. God built you for constant community with him. So here's what I know. Some of you, because of the way you're wired or driven people, you've already thought of 25 things you need to do different, and all that's gonna do is make you overwhelmed. You're gonna go right back down the old path because it's too much. Nobody can do it. But one or two max of three things, do you sense God's spirit telling you to just make a small change? somewhere that would have massive impact in your life. We wanna give you the time and the space to do that right now. So Chelsea's gonna sing a song for us and I don't want you to stand. I don't want you to sing. If you know it, just sing it where you are. It's a new song though. We just want you to take in the song for a minute. 
But what I want you to have in your head is that God's approach to you, God loves you, crazy loves you. Acts chapter three, verse 19 says this, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord. If you're feeling tired and worn out from doing things the same old way, maybe it's time to repent and return to the Lord and start a new trajectory and you will actually find refreshing in your soul. So while you go into this time of just sitting in the presence of the Lord, I just want you to hear from God. So I'm gonna ask him to speak right now. God, we come into your presence and we all need something different, God. We just need an honest evaluation from you about where we are and what needs to change. So God, help us first to swallow our pride enough to say, I need help. And second, God, would you meet us right here right now and speak? Some of us need to make changes physically or intellectually or emotionally or spiritually, but God, would you just give us each one or two things we know we need to do that give us the boldness to call a friend and begin the change. We could do all things through Christ who strengthens us. In Jesus' name.